Acts chapter 4. We'll read responsively a little bit longer section than normal. Uh, We'll start, I'll start reading in verse number 13. If you'd then respond by reading 14, and we'll continue in that pattern and conclude together then at verse number 22. Acts chapter 4, verse number 13, the Bible says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Verse 21 says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this text. Help each of us to have the tenaciousness of men like Peter and John. Help us to have a love for you and specifically a love for your name, even unto death. So Father, I pray that we would understand this text better as a result of this message, uh, that we would be able to apply it to our lives even here in 21st century America. I pray, Father, that you would move among us, that you'd be pleased with us, that you'd be glorified through this declaration of your word. I pray that you'd hinder distractions um, so that we could focus on you, focus on your word. Help us to be deliberate about focusing our mind on you. I pray that we wouldn't be daydreaming. I pray that you'd speak to us. And I know, Father, I know that you will speak to those interested in hearing. I pray that each of us would be those interested in hearing. Speak loudly to us by your spirit and according to your power, according to your will, and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. The last several Lord's Day mornings, I have been dealing with issues that pertain to our culture, and I want to continue down that path uh, this morning. And I want to do it with a message that has this title, and that is Defying the Government. Defying the Government. That's really what's happening in Acts chapter 4. The officials, the rulers, whether secular or sacred, in uh, Peter's day, uh, Peter and John and other disciples are, are defying their government. 
Both secular and sacred rulers were involved in this specific instance that begins to unfold in Acts chapter 3 and continues into Acts chapter 4 and even Acts chapter 5. So defying the government is the title for the morning. And it does have to do with these cultural issues that I've been discussing the last several Sunday mornings. After all, the U.S. government is now an extension of our carnal culture. The people in our ruling class are doing the bidding of our woke world. These two groups, the U.S. government and our carnal culture, have now become bedfellows. They have become allies over the the last 50 or 60 years. Our government has incentivized and even attempted to normalize things like sexual debauchery and vice like drugs and alcohol and wickedness of various types. In the United States of America, there truly is spiritual wickedness in high places, a phrase from Ephesians 6.12. So then the question is, how should Christians respond? Understanding the current condition of our culture and understanding that those who are in authority over us are on the side of promoting wokeism and carnality of various types. How should Christians respond? We'll consider four ideas this morning. The first of four is this. Christians should be model citizens. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, Over and over, you might say, replete through the New Testament is this instruction for uh, the believers, the followers of Christ, to be submissive, to be in subjection, uh, to obey the God-ordained authorities of our land. Keep your place, if you would, in Acts chapter 4 and go back to uh, Romans, the book of Romans. Go forward, I should say, uh, to Romans 13. Pretty well-known passage, I suppose, in relationship to this idea of being subject to the government or to authority. Well-known passage in relationship to God's instruction for Christians to be model citizens. It's Romans 13, verse number 1, where the Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto higher powers. As I've already explained, the idea of being in subjection is the idea of being submissive. To the higher powers or being obedient to those that are in authority over us it's there in verse number five where the bible says of romans 13 wherefore ye must needs be subject so just like the word subject or the idea of subjection in verse one so it is also in verse number five wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath but also for conscience sake so yeah we need to be in subjection to the government not just because of what they can do to us, the wrath or the havoc they might wreak on a society. They certainly have the power to do that. Not just for the wrath that may be executed for disobeying the government, but also for conscience' sake. Uh, A a good conscience before the Lord. That's what verse number 5 says. Verse number 6 goes on to say, For this cause pay ye tribute 
And then in verse number seven, this idea of model citizenship is unfolding. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. In other words, model citizens pay their taxes. Ufta. <laughs> April 15th is coming soon. But model citizens render tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear. It's the idea of respect and reverence and honor. It's a reference to wealth, finances, the whole idea of, of the defunding the police movement is an unbiblical movement. I mean, we're to pay these people that Romans 13 describes as ministers of God. We're to render tribute and render honor to these that are in authority over us. So model citizens are paying their taxes. Model citizens are giving genuine respect to public officials. And I caution you, church, about, about second-guessing and, and running your mouth and, and being contrary, not for the sake of any kind of righteous conviction, but being contrary just for the sake of ego. I caution you about those things. No, instead, we are to be model citizens. We're to give genuine respect to public officials. We're to obey the law. That's what model citizens do. It's verse number three of Romans 13 that says that the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. So yeah, be a model citizen. Do that which is good, the text says. That's what Paul is saying. He's the human penman here. Don't forget that. Romans 13, penned by the Apostle Paul. But what about the Apostle Peter? You could turn over, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'd like you to see uh, portions of the passage there. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be back in Acts chapter 4 momentarily. But now 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is the human penman here. Peter says essentially the same thing. He essentially says, be a model citizen, dear Christian. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, notice verse number 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Why? Well, for the Lord's sake. In other words, you are submissive in order to honor Christ. Do it for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. And then verse number 17, the text says, Honor all men and love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So both Paul and Peter and other first century writers are on the record for instructing Christian people to be Model citizens. Maybe you want a biblical illustration of such modeling. I think of Joseph and Mary. I mean, remember, it was not that long ago. Here we are in the month of March. Uh, we just celebrated back in December uh, the incarnation, and we were mindful of Joseph and Mary, and we were mindful of the decree that was sent out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. These are the people in charge, and a decree is issued. And imagine the inconvenience involved for Joseph and Mary in her pregnant condition. 
And yet they're model citizens. I mean, after all, all went to be taxed. Everyone into his own city. The people obeyed. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It's quite a trek, especially with a young pregnant wife. And he went to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went there to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. What a headache. And yet they obeyed. Um, We have had several females in our church congregation pregnant lately. I uh, am married to a female who has been pregnant three times. Um, Imagine the complaining that might have ensued out of the pregnant Mary. And yet, hopefully, Joseph is trying to lead his family lovingly and encourage Mary along. Mary, we're trying to be model citizens. The decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And so we're going to obey. And of course, their obedience worked perfectly in the plan of God. Because of Micah 5.2 prophesying that the Christ child would be born in Bethlehem. Model citizens. That's what we are instructed to be. The Christians are to be model citizens no matter what form of government we're in. Whether it's socialistic or it's communistic or it's an oligarchy or it's a monarchy or it's an autocracy or it's a democracy or a constitutional republic. Whatever form of government you're in, this text transcends countries and states and ideologies. It applies to Christians of every time period in every cultural context. Christians are not to be anarchists. We are not to be insurrectionists. We are not to lead a rebellion instead. We are to be submissive. God commands it. Did you see that in Romans Romans 13? Did you see that God commands it from 1 Peter chapter 2? Model citizens. But not only model citizens, secondly, we are to be men of conviction, men and women of conviction. Now, you know your pastor likes alliteration, so I'm going with the MCs today, okay? So model citizens, men of conviction, some of you ladies feel left out, uh, and so you're not left out. It's just the general term, men, mankind, men and women, okay? We're all supposed to be people of conviction, Um, And that's exactly, go ahead and go back to Acts chapter 4 if you haven't already. That's exactly what we saw in our responsive scripture reading. People of conviction. There does come a point when, all right, I have endeavored to be a model citizen, but maybe the governmental context in which I reside has now told me to do something that would violate a biblical conviction. And in an Acts chapter 5, verse number 29 sense, I got to obey God rather than man. People of conviction. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5. And as you have opportunity, I encourage you to study these chapters more comprehensively than we will this morning. But a miracle takes place in Acts chapter 3. 
Notice verse number one, God uses Peter and John to, to be extensions of his miraculous power. Um, notice verse number one, then Peter and John went up to gather into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. This beggar wanted money. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something from them. It was almost a routine thing for this lame man to ask passers-by for money. And when they made eye contact, his, the lame man's perception was, I'm about to get some alms. I'm about to get some money. Verse number 6, then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. If you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, you should highlight or mark, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, is the issue of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. What is the conviction that Peter and John were so passionate about that they had to push back on the governmental authorities of their day? Well, it's the conviction that there's power in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Power to heal this lame man. In the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they said, rise up and walk. And sure enough, Verse number seven, and he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And the Bible says in verse number 10, they were filled with wonder and astonishment that which had happened unto him. It's a wonderful miracle. Um, as the passage goes on, Peter and John hear from the authorities. Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John start to face the consequences of their governmental authority. I want you to be very clear that the issue that they got in trouble for was not the good deed, and that's what the healing of the lame man is called in chapter 4, verse number 9. The issue was not the good deed that was done to the impotent man. But the issue was the name through which that deed was done. That's why those guys got in trouble. And if you need to be persuaded that that was the issue, I want you to notate these verses. Not only chapter 3, verse number 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, but then additionally, notice verse number 16. Peter there has been preaching to the people, chapter 3, verse 16. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. So the first century Christians, these apostles, are saying, it's all about the name of Jesus. That's their conviction. They're not taking credit for themselves. They're giving credit to the name that is above every name. Not only that, but as the historic account continues to unfold, chapter 4, verse number Five, notice this, 
when it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, so here's, here's Peter and John in the midst of these rulers and elders and scribes and all these dignitaries, these big shots. Imagine how intimidating it would be to sit in front of the 71-member Sanhedrin the religious Ivy League elite erudite individuals of their day. Intimidating, to say the least. They set them in the midst and they asked them, verse number 7, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, if you're thankful for the ministry of the Holy Ghost, say amen. amen. Filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, ye rulers of the people, and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. They have a passionate conviction about the power that is in the name of Jesus. And that continues. Verse number 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name. We're talking about the name. None other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What about verse number 17? If you're in the habit of marking in your Bible at the very end. In this name. You see it there again. I mean, as a result of being in front of the Sanhedrin, the command was, uh, no longer can you speak in the name of Jesus. And verse number 18, they called them and commanded that they not to speak or at, or the Bible says, at all nor teach in this name of Jesus. So the governmental authorities have prohibited or are attempting to prohibit Peter and John and first century disciples from speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, and yet, that's their conviction. Further than that, a little fun fact, historic fact about what was going on in the first century. People in that day were required to recite the oath, a specific oath, to the empire. The oath was Kaiser Kyrios. Everybody was required to say, Caesar is Lord. But Christians refused because they were people of conviction and instead they would say, Jesus ho Kyrios, which is to say Jesus is Lord. They were men of conviction. Um, model citizens, yes. Submissive citizens, yep, God says so. However, there is a limit. We will not worship Caesar. That's what we're to take away from this text. You want us to say Caesar is Lord and you want us to bow the knee to the government whether it's 1st century or 21st century. So often governments, power corrupts. And eventually power gets to the point where it says you will worship us, you will obey us. And the Bible says no, we draw the line there. We will not worship Caesar. We should always obey those in authority unless 
They command us to do something that God forbids or forbid us from doing something that God commands. People of conviction. We should be submissive, yes, but we need to be prepared to stand in defiance when the earthly authority commands us to disobey God. I'm saying that if the U.S. government tells me that I'm not allowed to pray in public to the God of the Bible, lock me up because I will not obey. If they say that we're no longer allowed to preach in the name of Jesus, lock me up because I will not obey. If the United States government says that North Stone Baptist Church is no longer allowed to assemble, I will not obey, we will assemble anyways. If they require Christians to endorse same-sex marriage as a valid marriage, marriage, God won't let me. And so we will not obey. If they command us to celebrate Gay Pride Month, my Christian faith will not let me. 1 Corinthians 13 and other passages will not let me celebrate such wickedness. I will not obey. If they want us to bow to the God of wokeness, we ought not obey. Why? Because God won't let us. Do you see what I'm doing by making those statements? I'm invoking the higher authority. Yes, we are to be model citizens and obey the, the God-ordained authority, which interestingly, it is a God-ordained authority, but sometimes God-ordained authority can be a godless authority. So you always go to the highest authority. If the human authority tells you to do something that the heavenly authority says you ought not do, you have got to obey your heavenly authority. And please be clear that disagreement with authority is not a license to disobey authority. Now let that sink in for just a minute. I mean, we've really got to know the word of God in order to figure out when is the time to defy the human authority. Our defiance must be rooted in biblical principle, a deep understanding of, of the higher authority's instructions for us. We need to know what God commands. Church, we should know what God forbids. Or else, you know what happens? We end up in the herd mentality. We end up just going with the flow. If we don't know the Bible, if we don't have conviction rooted in thus saith the Lord, we just do what everybody else does and shame on us. Disagreement with authority is not a license to disobey authority. People of conviction have conviction that's not just some kind of esoteric idea or based on emotion or feeling. No, biblical conviction. I mean, it should come from this book. People like Daniel understood biblical conviction. He's going to pray to the God of the Bible whether they throw him in a lion's den or not. And he's going to open the windows too. You tell me you mandate that I have to pray to the king? Nope. I'm going to continue my habit in the morning and at noon and in the evening. And I'm going to do it publicly because other people need to see somebody standing up, somebody of conviction. And maybe that'll inspire them to not just go with the herd mentality and, and, and follow 
follow the earthly carnal leaders straight to hell. No, a man of conviction. Somebody like Esther. I mentioned, I, I think I mentioned or thought of Esther earlier. My wife and I were talking about Esther last night um, on our evening walk. And what a godly lady, tenacious person of conviction. If I perish, I perish. Willing to sacrifice her own life for the sake of her people, for the sake of God's will and plan for her. I talked about the Christmas account, uh, the, the Joseph and Mary. You remember maybe the wise men playing a part in the, the, the Christmas narrative. And the wise men are an example of, sure, adoring baby Jesus with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they're also a good example of a time appropriate for civil disobedience. Because Herod said, hey, I want to know where he is that is to be born king of the Jews, and I want you to let me know. And the wise men did not come back and report to Herod, and instead they said, Herod, I'm not going to play your games. And the Lord warned them, and they obeyed the Lord and went a different direction. The wise men obeyed a higher authority. Daniel and Esther and the wise men, people of conviction. All right, so we're supposed to be model citizens, and we're supposed to be men of conviction. But if we are people of conviction, and there comes times where we have to push back on our increasingly carnal culture, there are going to be consequences. And that leads us to the third idea for the morning, and that is martyred Christians. It sounds really good to say, I'm a person of conviction, right up until they say, oh yeah? Either renounce Christ or I will kill you. Yeah, it's, it's inspiring to other people to say things with conviction. But do we mean it even as unto death? Um, there's a price to be paid, for sure. If we are people of conviction, and, and those convictions bring the attention of our government upon us, we must be prepared to pay the price. These first century Christians that refused to say, and I explained this a minute ago, they refused to say Caesar is Lord, they were considered insurrectionists. They were considered people that were leading a revolt against Caesar. And as a result, they were thrown to the lions. They paid a price. When we can't obey Caesar's command, we must be prepared to face Caesar's hand. We need to be willing to go to court if need be. We need to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. By the way, the context of Acts 4 and 5, that's what happens to Peter and John. They are in court, basically, in front of the Sanhedrin. Um, and they are suffering. There is, there is punishment being considered and potentially doled out. I mean, after all, it's Acts chapter 4, verse number 16. What shall we do to these men? It's not, what shall we do with them? It's, what are we going to do to them? Not only that, verse number 17, let us straightly threaten them. And as you continue throughout the book of Acts, you see that Peter, specifically Peter and John and first century apostles, they were people of conviction. And so as a result, they paid the price. 
jail time, beatings, all kinds of other things. Um, are you willing to suffer for Christ's sake? To be first century Christians living in the 21st century? Some of you work in the government. We live in a military town. And so many people have jobs uh, in our government. I say to you, just like I say to public school teachers, you're on a mission field where you work. You're in a good place. You have gospel opportunities all around you. But be prepared to pay the price if you stand for Christ. Be prepared to go to court. I know of somebody who worked, has worked for, for several years, a large organization here in Pensacola. And he just got to the point where he was limited in his opportunities to witness and, and constantly felt the push of the woke agenda on him and the specific job functions he had. He was very close to the vice president of the company and the vice president of the company had a very woke agenda and he was responsible for then communicating that agenda to other people in the workplace. I'm saying be prepared to lose your job. Be prepared to suffer. Be willing to say, I just can't promote that because I'm a person of conviction for Christ's sake. I can't do that. Most of the notable first century Christians died as martyrs for their faith. The blood of first century Christians was shed over and over and over again because they would not submit to the tyrants who told them they had to deny their faith in Christ. The, the more our country heads towards this woke agenda, the more likely it is that Christians will have these kind of opportunities where their faith is tried. We must be prepared to choose between obedience to those who command sin or obedience to Christ. I emphasized when I had you turn to Romans 13 that Paul was the human penman. And it's Romans 13 that tells us to be a model citizen. And I also emphasize when we turn to 1 Peter 2 that Peter was the human penman. Also there he's telling us to be subject to higher authorities. Paul and Peter. Be good citizens. Those men died as martyrs ultimately because of the government that they said should be obeyed. Because they found that balance between being model citizens and being men of conviction. And they erred on the side of biblical conviction and ultimately it cost them their life. It may get to a point where we have to choose obedience to those who command sin or obedience to Christ and it may even cost us our lives. Acts chapter 7 records for us Stephen, certainly a man of conviction, he preached the message of the just one and they stoned him for it. There's a reason that Fox's Book of Martyrs exists. It's not unique to the first century that people would die for their faith. Century after century after century, Christians are martyred for just having the conviction that there's power in the name of Jesus. I mentioned if if they tell me I can't pray in the name of Jesus, they might as well lock me up. That has happened to me. I have been specifically in Delaware County 
Uh, in Muncie, Indiana, at the time, the mayor was a very liberal individual. Um, I was a police chaplain for six years in Muncie, and so I was often a go-to pastor when it came to uh, opening invocations at ceremonies. So, pastor, would you come? And it's a token, you know? A lot of these kind of secular assemblies will kind of tip the hat to a Christian pastor and say, would you come and we'll kind of do the expected thing, at least in some people's minds it's still expected, to open it in prayer. But the instruction was given to me uh, by not the mayor himself, but somebody close to the mayor, if you would, for the sake of Muslims and other ecumenical persuasions, could you just at the end of your prayer say amen? instead of saying, in Jesus' name. So I did not agree to that, um, would not agree to that, and that was, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe 13, 12, 13 years ago in America. America has only gotten more and more woke. Uh, America has only gotten uh, worse when it comes to um, so-called religious tolerance. I mean, tolerant of every religion except the one true religion, the God of the Bible. Things are only getting worse. Are you willing to die for these things? Model citizens, men of conviction, potentially martyrs as Christians. But then fourthly and finally, consider the message of Christ. Now when I say that, what do you think? You think I'm talking probably about the message that they heralded? And in part, sure. I mean, they preached Christ, they preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is perfectly summarized in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Yeah, that's the message of Christ. But one reason I think that these first century Christians had such boldness, and indeed they had that kind of boldness. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse number 13. When the religious elite, the government of the day, saw the boldness of Peter and John. I mean... What is it that gave these men such boldness? Well, chronologically in Scripture, here we are in Acts chapter 4, which is not that long after the instruction given in Matthew chapter 28. When I say the message of Christ, I'm talking about the message given to these disciples in Matthew 28. Turn there, if you would, please. I want you to see what I think is extremely applicable verses Somewhat familiar, but extremely applicable to what we're talking about this morning. How could they have such boldness? It's because they're thinking about the message of Christ, specifically the message described in the last section of Matthew's gospel. Then the 11, verse number 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying... Now, by the way, the resurrection has already happened. First, several verses in Matthew 28 record for us Matthew's record of Jesus' resurrection. And so this is all a part of Jesus' final instruction to his disciples, a part of Jesus' infallible proofs. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples in verse number 18. All power. You know what that word means? It means authority. I talked about deferring to the higher authority. How did these disciples have such boldness in the face of, of, of government uh, threats? 
Well, they were thinking about the one who is their authority. All power, the idea of all authority is given unto me, Jesus said, in heaven and in earth. So Caesar is impressive. Yeah, yeah. Jesus is saying, I outrank him. And so then he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. Who is the Son? The one speaking these words. You baptize them in my name. You baptize them. You, you teach them and you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have. Say that word out loud. Commanded you. It's authority. Um, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And all the people said, Amen. I love the comfort that he gives. So what, what was it that, that made them so bold? Well, it's that they were conducting themselves in a name that's above every name and with an authority that was higher than any earthly authority. But not only that, Jesus says, I am with you always. Now think that through with me for just a minute. Again, we're talking chronologically in the Bible. Jesus is there, Matthew 28, after his resurrection, before his ascension, the 40 days of infallible proofs. And we've looked at Acts chapter 4 and 5. Jesus in Acts 1 is recorded as ascending. So what does he mean in Matthew 28 when he says, I'm with you always? How is he with them? when they're going through all that they're going through in Acts 3, 4, and 5, and later in the book of Acts, and throughout the first century. Was he with them? Absolutely he was with them. Pastor Jonathan mentioned, uh, I think at the conclusion of the special that was sung, aspects of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He was with them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that it's Luke chapter 12. Now that's Gospels. Jesus is alive in Luke 12. But Jesus is teaching. His earthly ministry is being conducted. Luke 12, verse number 11, Jesus explains this to his disciples almost in a prophetic way. It's so interesting to me. Jesus says to his disciples that you disciples will be brought unto the synagogues and unto the magistrates, talking about earthly authority, and the powers, again, earthly authority. And what does he say to them? When, when he's gone from the earth, they will be taken into these governmental venues. And what does he say? He says, take no thought how or what things ye should answer or what ye should say. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why the, the Sanhedrin viewed Peter and John as ignorant and unlearned men. I mean, they marveled that they had been with Jesus, but initially they thought, these guys don't even know what they're talking about. Like Jesus in Luke 12 says, you're going to be brought before the magistrates and the powers. I don't even want you to think about how you're going to answer them or what you're going to say, because after all, Verse number 12 of Luke 12 says, The Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. I'm saying that in Acts chapter 4, verse number 13, Peter and John and the, the governmental overseers, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but then they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Not just in an earthly sense, in his earthly ministry, but I suggest that as Peter and John began to speak, 
the Sanhedrin maybe sensed something supernatural. I mean, Jesus said, I will be with you. And no doubt he was with them, for the Holy Ghost was teaching them what to say in that very same hour. So church, if we get to the point where we have to defy the government, we need to be people of conviction, we need to know what the book says and what battles we're going to pick. While at the same time, we need to yield ourselves completely to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I had you go to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and if I were to ask this well-churched crowd, what is the famous title of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, most all of us would say, that's the Great Commission. And the word commission means job. Just by way of conclusion, I want to emphasize that it's not just the great job of the Christian to communicate the gospel, but it's really the great mandate. Like, the only, I think it was Curtis Hudson who said, the only alternative to soul winning, what is the alternative to soul winning or to evangelism? Disobedience. Like, it's not an option. It's the great mandate. Even unto death. We want to be bold like Peter and Paul and Esther and Stephen and Daniel. Because when the day comes when we have to pick between obeying the United States government or obeying God, may we be people that choose to defy the government and instead obey God. May we have that kind of courage that only comes from the Spirit himself. Would you stand, please?